the conclusion of most social scientists and thinking people is that there is a deep-rooted connection between unrealistic expectations and discontentment in life. Nobody's doubting that. In fact, a professor at UCLA proved definitively that the reason our rich and affluent culture is filled with malcontented people is because, he said, their expectations are unrealistic. And I'm not talking about realistic expectations and and the goals in life. That's not what I'm talking about. Because that malcontentment has led to all sorts of emotional problem in our land. We are the most affluent, richest country in the world, have more emotional problems than any other country in the world. This malcontentment produced lack of commitment on parts of many young adults today. This malcontentment leads to impatience. Uh, It even produced what is known as the midlife crisis. Most of all, discontentment has produced a generation of whiners and complainers. Sadly, this whining and complaining and murmuring has infected many a church. Whiners take their whining with them. Wherever they go, they take their whining with them. Have you ever known somebody who to be a whiner, and the moment you see him or her coming, I said, oh boy, I better hide. <laughs> I, I, oh, he needs to come. You know, that's what happens with whiners, because they take their grumbling and their murmuring and their complaining. They take it everywhere they go. They take it to their homes. They take it to their, all of the relationships. They, they take it to their churches. Many a church today has their fair share of malcontented complainers. We don't have to go very far to realize that the very first whiner and complainer in the Bible was Adam. Adam was the first murmurer in the Bible. He disobeyed God. He broke the command of God. And then he had the audacity to blame Eve for it. As a matter of fact, it was beyond that. I mean, he he took it like a man, right? (laughs) He blamed Eve. (laughs) Not only that, he was ultimately blaming God. He said, God, had you not given me this woman, I would not have sinned against you. (laughs) Instead of confessing, from Adam on, we have generation after generation of complaining and murmuring against God. No wonder we are not passing the joy of the Lord to others. How can we give that which we do not have? And the reason we don't have it, because our lives are filled with complaining and with murmuring and with grumbling. The other day I read a story about two teardrops. These two teardrops floating down the river of life. One teardrop said to the other, who are you? That teardrop said, I am a teardrop from a girl who loved a man and lost him. And who are you? The other teardrop said, I am a teardrop from the girl who got him. (laughs) You see, malcontentment (laughs) makes us cry for what we've lost and makes us cry for what we got. (laughs) Because after Adam, 
It continued. The saga did not stop. Cain was murmuring against God for the severity of his punishment for killing his brother. (laughs) Moses himself complained to God for being too slow to deliver his people. And then he, bless his heart, became on the receiving end. (laughs) When God's people complained and murmured and, and grumbled the whole time, because God was invisible, but Moses was very visible. And man, they were shooting at him. I want you to hear me right, please. Listen carefully. Refusal to willingly and joyfully be contented with where God has placed you can be a very serious business. A believer's grumbling against God's will for their life instead of experiencing joy and thanksgiving and total trust in the hand of God is a serious business. Believers murmuring against God's appointed leaders or against one another can lead to severe consequences. Listen to what the brother of Jesus said, James in 5.9. He said, don't grumble against each other, brothers, or you will be judged. The judge is standing at the door. Discontentment that leads to grumbling will not only take away our joy, but your joy when it is eclipsed because of your grumbling, because of your complaining. Uh, You're going to find yourself unable to pass that joy onto others, which they desperately need to see. Because non-believers are going to look at your grumbling and going to look at your complaining and say, now who wants that Christianity? <laughs> Forget it. I'm fine the way I am. I don't need to tell you that being a stumbling block is a serious business to God. It's a serious business. Philippians chapter 2, beginning at verse 12. Paul begins by telling them that their salvation, which is the work of God in them, must be followed by sanctification. That's a big word, means of becoming like Christ every day. And beloved, let me tell you something. If you cannot look back and see that you are more like Christ this year than you were last year, and that you're more like Christ today than you were 10 years ago, then there's something wrong with your growth. Some people say, well, I just gave my life to Christ, and I got that insurance policy, and uh, I'm fine. No, your salvation is not the end, it's the beginning. To daily become like Christ simply means to live in obedience to Him, to live in obedience to His Word. While the act of salvation from beginning to end is all God's, but the work of daily transformation into the likeness of Christ is a joint effort, it's a joint project. It is between you and the Holy Spirit working together. You notice I did not say it's all your responsibility alone. That would be an error. The Bible makes it very clear that both God's sovereignty and man's response must be in operation together in this process of sanctification, in this process of Christ-likeness. This is one of the many paradoxes we have in the Bible. Our faith, the Christian faith, is a faith of paradoxes. All of it. That's why some people have a hard time with it. 
For example, Jesus, fully God, fully man. That's a paradox. The Bible written by human beings, but every word is authored by the Holy Spirit. That's a paradox. Uh, God eternally secures the believer's salvation, and yet we are commanded to obey Him. God is sovereign in dealing in the affairs of all of His children. He is working His purposes out, and yet He responds in answer to our prayers. If you can explain that one, it's a paradox. I don't have to worry about it. I just believe it and trust the Lord for it. The whole Christian faith is a faith of paradox. And when Paul said, work out your salvation in fear and trembling, he is not saying, as some people suggest, well, God did His part, now you need to do your part. And they walk around in their Christian life feeling it's all up to them. That's not what he said. God already saved you eternally. He saved you now, will continue to save you all the way to heaven. But you have to show the world your salvation. How do you do that? By your conduct, by the way you live, by your obedience to Christ, by His life, by His joy in your life. That's how you show it. I don't want you to miss this point because, listen, He did not say, work for your salvation. Did He say that? He did not say, work toward your salvation. Did He say that? No. That's not what Paul said here. And the best illustration I could think of all week would be like this. Somebody gives you a house, free and clear. (laughs) It's yours. From the moment they gift it to you, it's yours. You do whatever you want with it. That's salvation. God gave it to you. But you constantly have to keep it tidy, right? (laughs) You have to keep it clean. You have to keep it from smelling bad, (laughs) You need to constantly keep it in shape so that people be attracted to it. Otherwise, you're offending the giver of the gift. You're insulting the giver of the gift. In the same way, the children of Israel, they were delivered from the slavery of Egypt. That was all God's doing. They had nothing to do with it. In fact, they did not want to leave. They were up to their waist in Egyptian mud, but they did not want to leave. And even after they left supernaturally and were delivered, they wanted to go back. Can you believe that? I do, because I know human nature, and you do too. But that did not change God's mind, right? He kept His Word, and He saved them all the way to the promised land. And He does the same for His believing Christian children, those who come to Him through Jesus Christ in faith, through faith and grace. James asks the question, how do people know that you are saved? Good question. (laughs) By your obedience to the Lord. And that's why verse 13 he said, for it is God who works in you to will and to act according to His good purpose. You see, even your obedience to the Word of God requires God's power. You can't obey on your own. Uh, Even your obedience, without the empowerment of God, the Holy Spirit, He can't do it. And if you try to do it in your own, brother, let me tell you, you are up the creek without a paddle. And I've been there because I thought that I could keep my life pure for Christ by myself. And I would 
get frustrated. And the next morning, I say, I'm going to do better. I'm going to do better. And I'm going to do better. And every time I say I got to do better, I got worse. Until the Word of God challenged me. And I realized that I can't even obey without the power of God working in me. And that is why the Lord Jesus, before He sent the disciples to preach the gospel to all nations and make disciples, He said to them, before He could say that, He said, all power. How much of the power? All All power has been on earth and on heaven have been given to me, therefore go. Before He could say to them, you shall be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the outermost parts of the world, He said, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. You cannot serve God's purpose in your life without God's power working in your life. And that is why Paul immediately goes on to tell them to stop complaining and grumbling. Why? Because grumbling and complaining and being cantankerous are an indication, if you're a believer at all, it's an indication that you are trying to do it your way, that you're relying on your strength, that you want to do it in your own steam. And you were doing it without the power of God. And you know what happens? Pride and arrogance set in. When you try to do it on your own, and when you try to live by your own power, that will not only cause you a hard burn day after day after day, it's going to cause a hard burn to all the people who are around you. They're going to feel it. They're going to experience it. Immediate family first then all of other relationships, and then, of course, the church. The opposite of grumbling, verse 15, it says, becoming blameless. What's becoming blameless mean? Does it mean becoming perfect? No. Does it mean becoming sinless? No. Only Jesus was perfect and sinless. It means that you are open before God. It means that you will not allow barriers to build up between you and God. Remember our formula for joy? Remember that? J is for? Y is for? And the O is for? Nothing. And when nothing comes between you and Jesus, you will have your joy intact. And not only that, you'll be able to pass it on to everybody around you. Being blameless... Is, is being able to sing with the psalmist in Psalm 139 and say to the Lord, Search me, O God. Know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there's any offensive way in me and lead me to the way everlasting. Beloved, listen. When you and I keep short accounts with God, That means you repent immediately, as soon as you sin, as soon as you fall. You immediately turn to the Lord. That's keeping short accounts. You're going to discover that His power is freely and clearly manifested in your life and by giving you joy. And not only that joy is contained, but it's contagious, that others will catch it. Do you know that there are some people who are going to believe in the Lord because of your joy? And there are some people who might be repelled from the faith because of your lack of joy that comes out of grumbling and complaining. What an awesome, awesome responsibility. You say, how do I pass that joy? 
Well, you can accomplish it by refusing to join the choir of the complainers. Uh, when you refuse to take part in the chorus of grumblers, when you reject the company of murmurers, when you're determined to silence the gossip of bitterness, when you rebuke the malcontented, when you reject the symphony of false accusers, when you allow your life to be open before God and nothing comes between you and Him. He will continuously pour His power into your life, and when His power is fully at work in you, your joy will be infectious that others would want to know Jesus. Look at verses 15 and 16 again. When your joy comes from contentment and obedience, when that rules the day, you will be like a thousand wattage light in a dark and dreary night. Is it like a star? shining bright in a dark night. Paul is saying this generation, this world we live in, is a crooked generation. They have a twisted and warped mind. They have a twisted and warped heart. They have twisted and warped lives. And that is why your joy, my joy, that comes from living blameless before the Lord, your joy that comes from living open life before the Lord, your joy that comes from straight line between you and Jesus, that will reveal the crookedness and the perverseness of this culture and is going to force them to acknowledge their sin. When the light of your joy that comes from closely walking with the Lord shines in their darkness, you will be a rebuke to them. You'll be a rebuke to them. Oh, it doesn't mean that everybody is going to come and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ because of your joy. No, don't expect that. (laughs) Some will. Some have. But there are some who are going to reject it. And that's not new. They rejected Jesus. In fact, If you look through the great lights of church history, many of them were called names. King Festus called Paul a madman. The medieval pope during the time of Martin Luther, he said that Martin Luther ought to be put in bedlam. Heretics called Bishop Athanasius a madman. Those of his own church called Francis Xavier crazy. Uh, Many in the Church of England called John Wesley mad. People called William Booth, the founder of the Salvation Army, they called him a lunatic. And that is why John said in chapter 1 of the gospel that light has come into the world, but people chose darkness. Some will choose darkness, but some are going to come to Christ because of your joy. Paul said, when you determine to live joyfully, you would be like someone who's continuously holding the words of life to a drowning person. And then Paul goes on to point to his example, and the example of Timothy and Epaphroditus. Those three men, Paul, Timothy, and Epaphroditus, these men knew that they have clay feet, but no one could deny their utter and complete commitment in their obedience to Christ. No one can deny their utter and complete desire to obey the Word of God. These men were conscious of their own failures, but no one could ever doubt their dedication to serve the church of Jesus. In fact, you know, and I know from Timothy reading the epistle, that he was a timid soul. He was a fearful soul. He, in times, he didn't know which way to turn. 
And yet Paul in verse 20 says, he said, there's no one like him. They're all looking out for their own interest. Not the interest of Christ. Not the interest of Jesus. How did Timothy get there? By emulating the Apostle Paul. Whether you know it or not, and whether you like it or not, (laughs) uh, whether you believe it or not, what I'm going to tell you is true. And that is there's someone somewhere is emulating you. Someone somewhere is emulating you. It's, it's, just, it's just that that's a fact. Parents, listen to me. Your children are not necessarily listening to what you say to them. They are and don't stop. But they're watching your life. Carson points out that in the ancient world, before the Industrial Revolution... Most sons ended up doing vocationally what their fathers did. Children of a farmer grew up to be farmers, and children of bakers grew up to be bakers. Back then, the primary apprenticeship was your father. Your dad is the one who taught you your business. Uh, He's the one whom you watched, and you saw how he's going about things step by step, and then you grew up doing exactly what he did. And and that went on from generation to generation. But today, in our fast-paced society, there's some kids don't even know what their fathers do for a living. I'm extremely privileged that my two sons have turned down other lucrative opportunities to work with me in the cause of the gospel around the world. I feel singularly honored that they can watch my commitment to Christ. They can watch my love for the gospel, my commitment to God's Word, oh, but also my clay feet. And my deepest desire is that they will not learn from my success, but they learn from my mistakes. They can learn from my failures. In fact, I constantly remind them that their ultimate loyalty is to Jesus, not to me. And Paul is saying that Timothy has learned his Christian faith and ministry from his spiritual father. He calls him a son. He says, be a son to me. Ah, but because Timothy's loyalty was to Jesus, Paul could say, there's no one like him. Timothy and Epaphroditus, you see, they saw with their own eyes how Paul is more than willing to sacrifice anything for Christ. Not only that, they saw that he was not wanting to be the main sacrifice. You know how the people in the Old Testament used to bring a lamb and, and, and be sacrificed? Paul was not talking about himself in that regard. He calls himself a drink offering. You see, in the Old Testament, when a burnt offering is being offered to the Lord before God, a glass of water is tossed on the hot sacrifice, and it quickly fizzled out. Just a few smokes, puff of smoke, and it fizzled out. And it was the least part of the sacrifice. The main sacrifice was the lamb, but the water was the least part. And Paul said, I'm that glass of water. And in Paul's mentorship... Of those two fellows, he showed them that in sacrificing for Christ, it's always, always giving up the lesser for gaining the greater. 
It is always giving the inferior for gaining the superior. And that is why later on he says, I count all things to be loss in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whom I count all my gains to be. And I'm going to give you the literal word, and it's not rubbish as it's an NIV. It is dung. Dung. That's the literal word. That's the literal translation. Let me ask you this. Who would not give up rubbish for the treasure of Christ. Who wouldn't? Listen, I grew up in the Middle East. I know bargains. I know bargaining. There is no bargain like this in the world (laughs) to give up dung for this receiving Christ for the inheritance you have in Christ. Paul and Timothy and Epaphroditus sacrifice not a loss of something. To them, sacrifice is a loss of rubbish to gain real treasures. Beloved, let me ask you as I conclude, what rubbish are you holding on to? Your accumulation, your successes, your degrees, your net worth? What rubbish are you holding on to? What grievances that are you nursing? What is it that is robbing you of your joy and causing you to be a grumbler? What grumbling and complaining and murmuring that has caused you not to be able to pass the joy of the Lord on to others? Only you can answer that. No one can answer that question for you. Only you can do it. Whatever it is, I Pray to God that He will empower you today to give it up. Give it up. Give up the rubbish for the sake of Jesus, the greatest treasure of all. Thanks for listening to this message from Dr. Michael Youssef, recently featured on Leading the Way. If you'd like to know more about us, please visit ltw.org. That's ltw.org.